Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I'm Ben Fell, and together we are going to discuss the funny side of psychology. This week, maths. <laughs> That's right, America. Maths. What are you going to do about it? Um, yes, we, we, we've had two weeks of um, slightly, slightly edgier shows looking at <laughs> disgust and what seemed to be pornography, largely. Um, and uh, someone recommended we that we do... did any psychology of pornography? Oh, wait, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> um, and someone recommended last week, I think, that we do something on maths. And so we did, because yeah. A, we listen to our fans, and B, we are stuck for ideas and <laughs> being quite busy. Um, so thank you, person who suggested that we should do maths. Yes, I can't remember quite who it was. Uh, and Had we actually done proper preparation this week, then that's the sort of thing we would have looked up. I've done proper preparation in a sense. I just forgotten <laughs> that it was suggested. Just not in that sense. All of the truths we... Oh, I can't even quote Star Wars. Ben, why are we podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> Man, you must be ill. <laughs> anyway, um, bad. Let's, let's have some feedback and see if it gives us any ideas for next week's episode, right? <laughs> Probably a good idea. Actually, I have an, episode, uh, an idea for next week's episode based on... Not so much, sort of, based on the feedback. Anyway, so yes, Sam, regular commenter, Sam. I, I don't really know why I say that. Pretty much all our commenters are regular commenters. Let's, let's start referring to it as co-host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to come on, Sam, then send us an email and we'll ignore it for about six weeks. Uh, <laughs> Sam said thanks for the Vauxhall Opal joke uh, and also uh, that he enjoyed the being cumin joke, which I don't remember. I assume it was one of yours, Ben. Yeah, that was definitely one of mine. <laughs> well, well done, because I'd forgotten about it and it was good. I may not even have listened back to it. Um, also, uh, via the internet feedback, I had a discussion with Amanda Jorda about Christopher Eccleston. Uh, in which we ended up describing him as Clostridium Eccleston. She was impressed with our German pronunciation, or at least mine, and we saw how potentially easy GCSEs were to pass, which is not bad. Um, okay, this is all good things. Yeah, so I'm going to have to start. It did remind me of possibly one of the worst things I've ever done involved the use <laughs> or abuse of the German language. Ah, uh, yes. I would say the worst thing. It was taken well <laughs> by the person to, who it was done to. To an external no observer. One else. <laughs> to an external observer, that would have been considered one of the worst things that you've done. So I'm not doing too badly, really, in my life, really, if that's... Not really. That's, that's pretty minor by comparison. Um... Is that is that all for your feedback? No, no, I've got a couple more. Uh, Peter Hammerson. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's spelled P-Y-T-Y-R and then H-M-M-R-S-N. It may not be his real name. Peter Hammerson. Peter Hammerson. <laughs> Actually, if I think about it, yeah, Star Wars back to, there's a planet called Mercur, which is spelled similarly with the Ys. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't think I've ever heard it. have to look up an audio book for that. Anyway, um, Peter Hammerson yeah. said that he successfully painted his utility room to the sound of us. Oh, yeah, I saw that Making one. chores easier. Oh, yeah, it was probably <laughs> added to Team Psychomedia and also uh, to Tim and Max, the other podcast I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother Chris was back home briefly, uh, and he said that in a previous episode in a kind of feedback section i jokingly said hello february 2012 because of how far most of our listeners are behind <laughs> and he listened to it in february 2012 i thought that was pretty good oh perfect so hello to that one listener so hello to march 20 what no, no that's, that's where wrong. we are oh that's going in the future so what will we this like hello march hello 2013 yeah hello february 2013 
um, or some such. Anyway. I, I, I believe we'll have a listener in February 2013. Maybe someone listening back to our shows again to remember all the good stuff we did. Because this one's going to be a classic. Classic, <laughs> I can tell you. It's not really feedback. This is the last thing, I think, I have to say. But... Uh, I'm always happy when I get a celebrity Twitter reply. I put something ah, on yeah. about uh, Victoria Corrin saying, look, Victoria Corrin and David Mitchell both write for The Observer. Why didn't they announce their engagement in The Observer? <laughs> and uh, apparently it's because The Observer doesn't have an official register. Also, her yes. dad wrote for The Times, so that's why it's in The Times. I saw that, and I'm deeply jealous of it, because that's really, really cool, and Victoria Corrin is awesome. But I thought probably we... not as jealous as many people are of David Mitchell. True. Uh, equally uh, although i imagine the gender split is probably roughly equal on that maybe um, they are maybe. going to be a great couple they are um, incidentally thinking of great but actually no they're not they're the like the world's most likely couple but of course they're friends with and indeed are kind of interrelated by dating with the world's most unlikely couple charlie brooker and connie huck yeah which is kind of saw connie huck on tv on blockbusters when she was like 17 this morning which was weird Yep, that would be weird. Well, I just, I just want to say, A, I'm inordinately jealous of the fact that you have interacted with Victoria Corrin. Yeah, um, I think I've done so like once before. I think she, she is like the mo- maybe the celebrity who's replied to the most of my things. Oh, well, uh, it's a sad indictment of her. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I think we should start a, a, a Wittertainment-esque uh, thing of saying congratulations to... <laughs> Victoria Corrin and David Mitchell every, every episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, I may need to write that down or tattoo it on my body so I remember it. Yes. But anyway, hello to jokes. Victoria Corrin. <laughs> um, <laughs> congratulations on your upcoming nuptials. Yeah, if we, if we continue to congratulate her on our upcoming nuptials every week until this podcast ends, then that'll, that, that should do, I think. Super. We don't want her to ever forget. No. <laughs> um, I don't know if she... I don't know. I mean, I assume one remembers one's engagement. I've never really thought about it. It depends, on, it depends on the kind of the engagement. If it's the sort that happens in a, in a casino in Vegas, then possibly not. Oh, yeah. Do you reckon many people actually get married in Vegas, or do you reckon it's all just sitcoms? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of when things. When I say married in uh, Vegas, I mean, like, drunk and stupidly, not just married because it has lax licensing. Be- because they happen to live in Vegas. Oh, um, yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things like that where you, you're never quite sure if it actually happens in real life or if it's, if it's just in sitcoms. Um, particularly, and this segues neatly into what we've been done this week, I've been watching the kind of middle to end part of the third season of Arrested Development. That show uh-huh. goes downhill faster than an overweight penguin on a sledge. That it's, it's ridiculous how bad it gets and how fast it gets bad. I really like Arrested Development. Agreed. But Agreed. all of the stuff involving for British eyes only is kind of stupid this is the thing it has it has these like for those of you who haven't seen it, it has a number of episodes where charlie theron plays a um what, what's the, the they have like a stupid acronym for it basically she plays someone who has an awful british accent but who is meant to be british whose britishness masks from the good upstanding american cast members the fact that she is um mentally impaired uh and this is apparently the source of humor although i didn't see much evidence for it there is one good joke in it in that she talks about how stupid it is when uh, australians play english people in films 
Uh, and how as an English person, she really hates that. That is the best joke to come out of her character. Yes, which is saying something. But anyway, like it, the, the, there's like four or five episodes with her and they're catastrophically awful. And you're like, and then finally she leaves and you're like, oh, thank goodness for that. Maybe they'll get back to being good again. But they don't. It continues to be bad. Um, so this has been really upsetting because I was really enjoying Arrested Development. Okay. Um, um, so yeah, that's that's a thing you've been doing this week. <laughs> it is a thing I have been doing this week. Where am I going to cut this? Honestly, man, you've put in no thought to decent editing, or at least to me paying attention to the stuff I need to note down in order to edit well. I suppose you could just have the the like segue music playing in the background, rather. Than yeah, I suppose I could do cut. that. Um. Um, anyhow. Um, is that the most significant thing you've done this week? Not, not really. I mean, I did fly to Jersey and back, um, which was quite fun. Uh, yeah, I, I, I went to visit um, some friends of mine who are currently dog-sitting for a uh, wealthy Jersey couple. Um, you don't need to say wealthy. Well, you kind of do sometimes. In this a case, Jersey it's, couple. it's particularly significant because the couple's... and They're sort of an elderly Jersey uh, couple who's... The wife's dad was apparently the last governor general of Malawi and handed it over to independence, which is quite cool. It gives an, yes. some idea of the uh, the pedigree we're talking about here. Um, also on the subject of pedigree, we, they, they, their friends have been house-sitting for their dog, who is one of the stupidest animals I have ever met in my life. Very, very sweet, but thick as two short planks. Um and much of the week was spent chasing the dog round and round the garden, trying to get it to go inside so we could leave the house and catch a bus. Uh, also, on, it's Jersey. It takes like half an hour to drive across. How long could it take to walk to where you wanted to go? <laughs> well, we did walk everywhere. We, we spent one very pleasant afternoon walking around like the East Coast and looking, trying to get into castles. It had a, like a litany of failures for which I entirely blame my friend, like, like everything that we tried to do we were sort of thwarted in doing we tried to go to visit a castle and the castle was shut and we didn't have the presence of mind to pick up some of the gardening equipment outside and pretend to be gardeners because we did we got quite far into the castle before we a saw anyone and b were stopped um but uh so that that didn't work uh and then on the way out another instance we tried to go to a pub only to find that the pub had been turned into an old people's home um, <laughs> how far did you get in before you realized that well, we got, meds time we got to the door um to see you know a kind of agent like woman with a clipboard leading an elderly man out and talking to him about yeah a future residence and like something's gone terribly wrong we've made a huge mistake <laughs> um, on the subject of, of jersey animals though and relating to this week's podcast even the level of segue here is amazing um i we did spend a very very enjoyable evening at the house of uh, one of their friends um who um ha- has inherited this house from um one of his friends who left it to him in his will and which is essentially full of priceless and uh, antiques and relics from india and and the far east and the, uh, the yeah and the east um which was fascinating and very interesting to look around um one of the things that was also inherited with the house was a cat uh whose name was mathematics which is <laughs> a brilliant name for a cat it's it's just it was a very good cat as well um but a cat called mathematics is perfect 
Yes. I don't remember much odd. of the specifics of that evening. Were there, one of were the there... things that we were plied with was home-brewed uh, damson vodka. Okay. In large That's... quantities. <laughs> We've talked about amnesia in the uh, previous episodes. Yeah. That's amnesia juice. I mean, a major, a major factor of the week was was the alcohol and i was saying to tim just before the podcast that although there obviously aren't any time differences and the flight to jersey takes roughly 25 minutes i'm suffering from what might be called jersey jet lag um which comes of drinking until three in the morning the night before you fly and then being hung over on your flight i was gonna say the only time i've ever been airsick was when i went to jersey um Huh. We had like a rough landing or something, and they are quite. I mean, the planes are very small, so you do get a lot more bump. Uh, yeah, stuff. that's probably what it is. Um, I thought it was quite fun though. Like, it's nice being in the the little diddy jet planes because you, yeah, you can sort of, you feel like you're flying on a remote control plane. <laughs> <laughs> right, but there are some people who wouldn't find that a fun thing to think <laughs> about. Well, I am not one of them. Yeah. But anyway, yes. Uh, did you do anything this week, Tim? Did you fly? Uh, uh, did you meet any interestingly named animals? Um, unless you're counting humans, then I don't think so. Um, although I have to say, I uh, I don't know if anyone knows, we have two guinea pigs huh? whose names are Ruffles and Anakin. <laughs> which <laughs> basically the rule is one of the guinea pigs has to be called a Star Wars thing. The other one doesn't. <laughs> that appears appears to be the rule. <laughs> Um, they're my brothers, and that's apparently his rationale. But no, um, did you ha- I met have guinea pigs previously that followed this. this um, we had one guinea pig previously, and so yes, it was originally Ruffles and Chewbacca. <laughs> Chewbacca is a very good Anakin. name for a guinea pig. I'm not so sure about Anakin. Um, he's the you know young sprightly one who hasn't yet turned into someone who everyone hates. Dark. <laughs> oh wait, no, J- Jake Lloyd. I did watch the Phantom Menace. Um, Hayden Christensen makes you forgive Jake Lloyd, but you shouldn't. Um, thinking of that, Darth Maul is alive. Darth Maul is alive. Oh, In uh, oh. the Clone Wars, spoiler warning, Darth Maul is alive and he has a spider droid body for so, some reason. I mean, that's just following like the Boba Fett paradigm of well, yes, it George is. Lucas and... killing off his best, like the best thing that he's come managed, actually managed to come up with. And then the, the expanded universe people having to retcon them back into existence yeah this is technically darth maul's fourth resurrection in various media um, right <laughs> and his second canonical one though so you know huh. um i think should be able to keep track of that because my brain isn't you know used for anything more important than <laughs> Star Wars that Wars expanded um, universe things i was but yeah no i did i did meet some humans i did i went to a poetry society meeting oh lovely uh the Worcestershire stanza of the Poetry Society. It was really nice. Everyone was really nice about everyone's poetry, but also constructive. So they were kind of that interesting balance. And I was kind of scared. Well, not scared. It was like, oh, I've never done it with strangers before. I've only ever really done it with people I know. And with people you know, you kind of trust them. <laughs> to. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> yeah, I went to an orgy. That's what happened. Have you been listening to the past two episodes? <laughs> an orgy of poetry. This was going to be a week about mathematics, not the cat, the construct. But yeah, anyway. Um. So yeah. Um. And other than that, I watched the first new episode of Community featuring Troy and Arbed being normal. <laughs> um. I missed that because of being in Jersey. Damn you, Channel Islands. Well, yeah. Hey, have you ever watched any Channel Islands TV? Thinking of cats. 
uh, I'm not sure. The, uh, it's kind of. Do you mean the stuff that's set there or like local? No, no, I don't mean Bergerac. <laughs> I mean like Channel Islands News, although I don't know what it's actually called. No, we had Sky, unfortunately, so there was no reason to do anything of the sort. Uh, you see, this is the joy of having satellite is you can watch Channel Islands News even when you're on the mainland. Apparently, when uh, when my friend first got, uh, what is it? that it's not it's like cable or whatever it is whatever it is that he got the the like interesting clever television i don't have a tv stop getting on my back but anyway when he first got it uh it's been set up wrong so he could only get french channels um which obviously <laughs> upset him a great deal yes but you know he is french so that's he isn't french, <laughs> but he lives in jersey so he's french yeah, and the Falklands belong to Argentina. Oh man, if we have Argentinian listeners. Um, I make no jokes about the Falklands, I don't really care. Uh, I mean, it was really interesting actually while we were there, uh, apart from the fact of, as happens every time it seems that I go to Jersey, being forcibly told the story of the Battle of Jersey, um, yeah. which was like like a, a 16 Jersey militia with like, hose and, and garden implements against a ver- a boatload of french people trying to take over the island there seems to have been quite a long-standing history of french people getting it into their heads to try and take over jersey and then not succeeding like the guy who um uh the apparently a, a nuclear physicist who got hold of an m16 rode to i think it was possibly sark uh and tried to take it over but was outwitted by a policeman you mean the policeman? The policeman, yes. Sorry. Sark, Sark is such an amazing place. I've been once, um, and it's weird. Yeah, I, but cool. there was a very mellow. There was a um, on the flight over. I was, for lack of anything else to do, reading the uh, in-flight magazine, which had back-to-back like it's it's two headline articles were back-to-back interview with Leonardo DiCaprio um, and James Cameron about sh- reshooting Titanic in 3D. And an article about how weird Sark is. <laughs> is that news? <laughs> At least it got rid of feudalism. <laughs> Only 2008. Just. Yeah. Woo. So, yeah, I think that's that's all we've done. It's a Channel Island special, apparently, this week. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're, we're a little bit a little bit sort of blurry this week, so I uh, can't speak to the quality of the podcast. But anyway, the only other thing I did was watch a whole mess of films while I was there for, you know consistency sake with previous podcasts um and the only real thing to come out of that is that irobot and rise of the planet of the apes make an excellent double bill oh really they've got a lot of yeah there's a lot of sort of consistent themes between them yeah and, i know, can see like, some similar shots and that yeah really, yeah you know like about it. main character who's like mocap and like like semi-human underclass rising up and all this sort of thing it's sort of like the i for one welcome our new robot monkey overlords double bill <laughs> hey we've talked about robot monkeys on the show previously how cool is that that is cool <laughs> uh yes the, the, as soon as they can stop eating peanuts they'll be our overlords they will um that yeah i don't like iRobot because i like isaac asimov it's one of those ones where it's like it kind of goes against the book kind of right and that's enough for me to hate it <laughs> basically the woman she doesn't care about men because she's like one of the first feminist sci-fi characters ever written, so she shouldn't be falling for Will Smith. Well, that was actually one of the things that I really liked about it, not knowing the Asimov stuff. Yeah. Was that she, you know, I, I like any action film where the, the male and female main characters don't end up kissing at the end. That's why I really like Constantine. Um, yeah. For all its flaws and lack of 
uh, adherence to the source. Music. I was going to say, yeah, it's another one with so bad in a way by by Hollywood standards, she's she's like full on feminist because she yeah doesn't just sort of like fall for the uh, fall for yeah no. okay. But I suppose that's, so. that isn't necessarily a, that's more of a reflection of Hollywood than it is of her character in the film. I, I think you're right. Yeah, no, I was expecting... No, I, I think I demanded too highly of the film. And I kind of enjoy it when I watch it. But. Yeah, but you don't do that about more films. Yeah. Like The Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> it's not It's not betraying any sort... Oh, wait, yes, it is. <laughs> it's betraying everything about you. <laughs> Anyway, should we talk about psychology? I suppose we could. <laughs> Having insulted your very character. <laughs> if you add episode one to I, that makes, well, one plus I, because you can't really blend those together very helpfully, can you? Wait, no, it's I cubed, isn't it? No, it's not. Is it? You see, I talked about an imaginary number. I thought I'd kick us off with an imaginary number. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty belabored segue, you know. <laughs> Got to keep up standards on this show. Okay, would you like me to talk about some psychology? Yes. Woo! Okay, so uh, this week we're talking about maths and mathematics uh, and cats. Um, this following study contains two of those, maths and mathematics. Sadly, no cats that I know of. Um, it is by... Uh, what's his first name? Let's find out. Let's be nice and, and chummy. It is by Peter Gordon. Um, from 2004 and it's called Numerical Cognition Without Words Evidence from Amazonia and this is like this is sort of classic proper old fashioned science go to a far away place and look at some strange people and then write about them um, and it is based because it's done from Amaz- uh, sort of Amazonian tribesmen and it is based on uh, a principle called the Wharf Hypothesis uh, which was uh, developed by uh, someone called Benjamin Lee Worf. Uh, no relation of the Star Trek character. Um, who proposed the following hypothesis, in kind of which had kind of a weak and a strong version. So the weak version of the Worf hypothesis is that our language influences the way we think. Um, which seems fairly, you know, intuitive. That makes sense. Yes. Unfortunately, the strong version of the Worf hypothesis is that language determines the way we think. Um, I, uh, there are certain concepts um, and constructs that we simply cannot entertain, we cannot think of, because we don't have the language to describe them. It's kind of this sort of primacy of language idea. Um, it's very George Orwell, really. Yeah, uh, but you know, based this is kind of a bit extreme, and based on that, I think it's uh, Benjamin Lee Wharf needs to be presented with the prestigious Larry Squire Award for perseverance in the face of common sense, um, <laughs> because it, it just, I mean, a lot of uh, some psychology doesn't seems highly unintuitive and turns out to be true, but thankfully this is not one of the cases. Um, and you, so you can apply this to lots of things. And there's some very cool studies which we've mentioned previously about uh, um, categorical perception relating to things like color, whereby if you have uh, linguistic categories for colors, particular colors in your language, then you um, have a, an advantage when it comes to distinguishing between them like across categories. Uh, so if your language, say, doesn't have separable uh terms for pink and red for example you will find it much harder to distinguish 
uh, colors that are kind of on the borderline between pink and red than someone who does have them in the, the language, which is very cool. This, uh, the study by Gordon applies, kind of applies these principles to counting um, because uh, there, are, there exist cultures that do not use the same uh, base 10 counting system that we do. So um, apparently, according to this article, there are some cultures where they've taken the kind of the idea of using body parts as the foundation of your the base of your counting system. So, in you know, English and most Western languages, the idea of having 10 fingers has led potentially yeah. led to this kind of like base 10 system. But um, apparently there are some which use up to between like 20 or 30 body tags kind of to count in count in 20s or 30s although um, sadly the article didn't go into it any further and i didn't say, follow up the on the references the 20s presumably is your toes yeah the 30 isn't it like both eyes your nose your mouth your nipples your <laughs> i don't know Are you, i'm sure you can complete don't you, you i'm sure you end up with an odd number there though <laughs> anyway um and so uh, apparently also there was there is a group of uh, Gomulgal South Sea Islanders uh, who are recorded as counting using a recursive binary system, which does suggest that they might be robots. Um, but I thought that was quite cool. Um, but in this particular instance, uh, Gordon took three field trips uh, to study a tribe called the Piraha, or the Piraha, Piraha, I think, um, who live on uh, the banks of the Macy or the Maasai, Masi, Maasi River. Uh, in the lowland Amazonia region of Brahil. Um, and they, they, the tribe has a population of less than 200, um, split up into villages of only you know 10 to 20 people. And they're almost completely monolingual um, and have very limited interactions with um, outsiders. And interestingly, they have a counting system which consists entirely of only three words, um, which are, and I hope that this is going to be a, a, why I chose to do this one, given that I have the most problems with pronouncing, well, English words, let alone uh, <laughs> for, uh, the words from other languages, specifically words from obscure Amazonian tribes languages. Uh, but I'll try and do it, do my best. So the, the three words are, um, uh, it is, let me get this right, hoi. Uh, with a falling tone, as in hoi, uh, means one. Hoi, with a rising tone, hoi, means two. So the same word means both one and two, depending on how you uh, enunciate it. Um, however, those two t words aren't consistent. So uh, hoi always denotes more objects than hoi, but hoi is sometimes used for sw small quantities like one or two or even more. Um, so they have words for one and two, which are separable, but don't always mean one and two. Sometimes the word for one could also mean two or three. And sometimes it, it just, yeah, it gets very confusing. And then they have just one word for everything else. Like, uh, it's, uh, bagi, I think means many or aibai. They seem to have two, according to the article, they seem to have two words that also mean many, um, so, yeah, very... And very... Uh, different sorts of many, except yeah, we yeah. don't know. I mean, it reminds me of, without wanting to be insulting, the rabbit language in uh, Watership Down. Oh, right. Where it is one, two, three, 
I think four or many, or it might just be one, two, three, many. Yeah. Which is kind of realistic to animal counting, but. Huh. Um, I mean, so, you know, the idea of having a language which sort of stereotypically sounds like it's one too many lots kind of thing um, is, is interesting. But it, what is particularly interesting is that it's very, it's, it's kind of seems to be much more complicated and fluid than the uh, sort of ca- very, very rigid categorical counting system that we are familiar with. You know, three means three. It doesn't mean anything other than three. Um, so the, 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 the interesting distinguish, distinctions between like hoi and hoi, um, that is to remind you, hoi is one and hoi is two. Um, this, this kind of weird distinction whereby the, the two hoi is always more than the one hoi, but one hoi could also mean two objects because it's just kind of a small number. The Gordon interprets that as that, uh, hoi, the smaller one is a prototypical construct as in, it's a bit like in English, the phrase a couple. So uh, a couple is a quantity which is prototypically two. But if someone said, I'm going to give you a couple of badgers, then you wouldn't be surprised if he actually arrived with like three badgers. Um, because it's, it's, it's only prototypical, it's not concrete. And so Gordon reckons that uh, hoi is uh, prototypical for one. So if a Pira person said, I'm going to give you hoi uh, jaguars um, then if they arrive with two or three jaguars then you you wouldn't well you'd probably be surprised because he was bringing you jaguars but you wouldn't be surprised at the number of jaguars um, is this what happened to John Prescott <laughs> I wish it had been what happened to John Prescott in the kind of jaguars that I'm thinking about not because I wish any particular ill on him I just think it would be interesting to see him deal with them he punched them on the nose probably you know? um, make a delicious jaguar pie Anyway. Right, I think we've exhausted the obvious jokes there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think either of us are in a, in a kind of cognitive state to come up with any more detailed jokes about John Prescott and Jaguars. New Labour doesn't need any more satire. <laughs> but it does need more Jaguars. <laughs> it does. It would, they'd probably do a lot better in elections if they had Jaguars. Um, uh, anyway, so to, to give some examples of the just like weird complexity of this language. So... He, he's uh, Gordon wrote out a list of the ways that uh, Piraha tribes people represent uh, numbers of objects from one to ten, um, and it's 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 very interesting but very ambiguous. So to represent one object, they'd use hoi, um, but they they also commonly um, use uh, fingers to as a kind of accompaniment to the language. But the weird thing is when they're saying when they're referencing one object, they'll say hoi, but they'll hold up two fingers. That is so weird. Which is very strange. Um, and when they are talking about two objects, they will say hoi, but, and also hold up two fingers. So the only difference, the fingers, the kind of the finger representation of one is the same, but it's only in the pronunciation that changes. But then obviously also two can be res- represented by ibagi, which is the, the word for many. Um, then for three objects, they would say hoi, which also means one, but they'd all then hold up three fingers, which kind of makes more sense. You're saying, you know, yeah. the slightly higher number and specifying it as three. Then we get to four. Um, you would again use hoi, the rising tone, but this time you'd show five fingers and then remove two, leaving three. 
or you just say I bag ye for many kind of thing. And and then it, it goes on from here and you you know, you have so for seven, um you would uh you could potentially say like I bag ye meaning many and you would hold up five fingers and then increase that to eight. Or show f- like five fingers, uh, then for eight, you'd have five fingers increasing that to eight, and then you'd increase it to ten. It, it's very, very counterintuitive and kind of difficult to, it's very difficult to try and extract like a, a consistent rule behind it. And the reason for that is that there really isn't one. Um, so this. Do you reckon that they just hate Westerners? Maybe. It's entirely reasonable. Um, <laughs> Amazonian tribesmen with something to be angry about, about Western influence. I cannot imagine why. Um, But anyway, yeah, so uh, Gordon was interested in what what impact this, having such a kind of abstract and unconcrete counting system might have on their mathematical ability or specifically their counting ability. And so he... uh, he he got a number of the the tribes people seven in total six males one female to uh do a series of matching tasks with him so this is where he'd you know sit opposite them and present them with say a, a number of batteries he'd sort of put them into a pot um and ask the other person therefore to count out the same number or what they consider to be the same number and uh, based on a, a variety of these tasks and under sort of slightly subtly different conditions, uh, he concluded that accurate, the, the matching was pretty accurate for small sets of up to about three. Um, but anything larger than that, uh, the, the ability to accurately uh, match exactly the same number of objects was very, very poor and de- decreased dramatically as the set size the number of objects increased um although he points out in the article that performance even on the high sets was never just at random they weren't just sort of guessing they clearly understood the task and understood what was required of them and were trying very hard to get it right but just it was just very very difficult for them um and at these kind of higher set sizes they often used strategies like um spatial estimation so they'd they'd kind of try and they'd they'd given a number of objects which took up about the same amount of space as the the you know the target um or things like chunking so if there were lots of if they if the the objects they had to try and match were kind of randomly scattered across a table they'd actually kind of chunk them into smaller smaller groups um and so there's like a three there a two there and a four there and then try and match those and they they could be that could be quite successful um which seems which sort of goes along with this idea that it's just very cognitively demanding uh if you if with given this this very sort of abstract non concrete um language basis um so the conclusion that Gordon came to was that there is this split between uh precise enumeration for small sets you know one two and three, which seems to be. Um, which he points out is quite is kind of uh, independent of language because there are studies which show that prelinguistic infants are very accurate for um, exact enumeration of small small numbers and animals can do it as well. Um, but then that there's this this kind of set separate process of um, judging large numbers of objects, which does seem to be linguistically dependent because 
when you have a language which doesn't account for it, then you, the, the Piraha tribesmen are, are forced to resort to this analog estimation, which doesn't work as well, basically. And this is perhaps probably why animals and pre-linguistic infants can't do it either, because they don't have the language. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, not a particularly funny study, but I thought it was really interesting. There's also, um, I found a, a follow-up by um, someone called uh, Frank, Michael Frank, um, with a couple of other people, um, who went back to the same tribe and kind of uh, did some replication and uh, qualification of what Gordon found. So they they replicated all the findings and this seemed very consistent. Um, but the argument made by Frank was that actually what Gordon was testing was uh, numerical memory. So when he was presenting these matching tasks, he'd, he'd show the number of objects he wanted the person to match, but then he'd take them away and the other person uh-huh. had to do it from memory. And Frank uh, et al., um, replicated these tasks but leaving the objects kind of visible so it was just about matching you know a, a visual uh, a present target and they found that when when the objects were left then performance was almost perfect no matter what the set size um, and the way they interpreted this was by uh, suggesting that it shows that numerical understanding is present so they understand the idea that say if you add or subtract one object from a set in a matching task, that makes the match incorrect. And therefore, they, that's, the Piraha understand the concept of one, even if they don't have a specific word for it. It's just that um, their ability to kind of hold number concepts in memory is, is impaired by their language. And therefore, it, uh, as the kind of qualification to what uh, Gordon was saying, it's not the concept of, of, an, of exact quantities that is dependent on language. It's the ability to remember those exact quantities. Uh, sure. Which is very interesting. Very cool, I yeah. thought. Thinking of language and the way you kind of represent number uh, affecting how you actually do some maths. I have something on a similar theme to that, really, except with British children being rubbish at maths instead of tribespeople, um, basically. Um, so, yeah, there was this guy called Hughes, Martin Hughes, as it happens, who in 1986 wrote a book um, that basically had a look at what children could do in maths and what they couldn't do, and maybe how teachers could help them do better. Um, because it seemed at the time maybe that a lot of British children were struggling with maths, and mm. yet the psychologists were pretty confident that actually mathematical skills can be, you know, learnt and what have you at a quite a young age. So what was going on there? Um, for example, when asked to represent a sum with blocks, uh, a simple sum such as 2 plus 3, even 6 to 9-year-old British children... Um, were doing really badly at it. They would maybe just present the numbers, um, you know, so they'd get out two blocks and three blocks and Mm. then just maybe get out five blocks as well. They wouldn't do, here's two blocks, here's three blocks, I'm adding them together, that's five. They wouldn't do that. Right. And similarly, when Hughes did something like that, he'd go, here's two blocks, here's three blocks, I'm pushing them together, that makes five. Now write down what that is. They wouldn't use operators. They would just like write two, three, five they wouldn't Mm. do two plus three equals five Mm. and of course i blame thatcher for this (laughs) um 
But right. uh, Hughes decides not to blame Thatcher so much as to try and suggest that actually what he was doing there was two different types of maths. That there was the type of maths with the blocks, which is informal maths, and the type of maths with numbers and symbols, which is formal mathematics. And if you only teach one, um, then you're never going to cross the gap. You're never going to bridge the gap, huh. as I believe his follow-up book might even have been called, um, right. to try and connect up the things that the children do get that are less abstract with the abstract things, so they can kind of learn the abstraction. Hmm. Now, a lot of follow-up researchers found that children are actually better at this than they used to be, perhaps because of user stuff being taken on board by the national curriculum and the numeracy hour. Do you remember the numeracy hour coming in? Was that like a TV show? No. Okay, it was no a mind. educational scheme. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I do. I All of a sudden, think. we stopped having, like, English and maths lessons of indeterminate length and started <laughs> having literacy and numeracy lessons that were an hour long. <laughs> it was very... I don't know. It felt like this big thing coming down from on high when it happened to me as a child. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, basically, what schools have done, and although they do keep pointing out, teachers never listen to psychologists, uh, that... Uh, we do a lot more with the kind of concrete number systems that we know from all sorts of different studies help people do maths and try and bridge it down to the written down numbers. Um, so yes, the uh, idea of this two system of maths, which some researchers call binumeracy, in my mind, the worst form of by curiosity. <laughs> um, numbers <basically>, are sexy. <laughs> are they? Let's not talk about that because I've had some ideas and we're not going to go there. This is a clean podcast. <laughs> this is this is one boring podcast, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Hughes basically had this idea that like these kids had learned some maths at home, but then they were coming into school and not really ever speaking the same language. Um, and uh, but yeah, since then, we've had this national curriculum numeracy hour had questions like how many apples do you have if Romania has seven and Alfie has six? Um, you know, I always found the names really weird in those maths oh, questions so strange. because somehow they managed to be like ethnically representative and yet never have the same name as anyone in my pretty heterogeneous urban primary school. <laughs> and I don't know how those two things are possible unless they were making up for the names or I just lived in a really weird area. There are it's a lot of names I've never run into again, I guess. So you don't, you don't feel that it might be because they were all written by white middle-class people who had to look up the ethnic diversity names in a book. I've just had a sudden memory of something from high school. Yes, probably. <laughs> um, that is quite likely. The other is thing this is, this a memory for something that you want to tell us about, or is it just It's kind not of that like interesting, but I just remember that... Type situation. <laughs> I had a flashback to a maths lesson uh, in which one of our maths teacher as our high school uh, wrote one of the later maths textbooks that we used in our high school which might explain why we kept on using such old books ah. as long as he was possibly even the head of maths we were going to mm. keep using these textbooks of which he had written a couple of chapters <laughs> rather than anything more modern <laughs> but yeah or well, have you heard that recent uh, story that they've talked about on the bugle and seven day sunday about this homeschool resources with all these questions involving a lot of death Oh, to try yeah, and get yeah. boys interested in maths. You know, <laughs> if I killed 10,000 ninjas and my dog ate 2,000 ninjas, what percentage of ninjas were killed by the dog? In fairness, those were really good questions. <laughs> they were tough. You know, yeah. lots of big numbers there. Yeah. 
I, I, I imagine it works. I'm surprised it's been that controversial. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, if something is, but then, yeah, it's trying to bridge that gap. Once you've got them interested in ninjas, then you can get them interested in numbers. <laughs> I feel like I should be in a different profession, and that of that of revision guides or something. I feel like I should be a ninja. <laughs> well, you know what they say. I don't. They're very stealthy about it. <laughs> yes, they say nothing. They are silent. Because <laughs> how would you be? Yeah, garrulous ninja doesn't really work. <laughs> Although that Ask a Ninja show really would be bad if he stuck to that principle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's still going. I, I, that was really good when it was on and then it sort of disappeared. Yeah, I don't know. So yeah, thinking of conceptual stuff that children don't really understand. If you ask a young child a question like, what is two and one more? They mm. will ask you, one more what? Or possibly, will I get an ice cream for this? <laughs> uh, one, one other example from Hughes that I quite like sounds like a joke. Uh, have you ever heard a kid telling jokes recently? I was with a young uh, child recently. No, I don't go to many, like, under 10s uh, open mic nights. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be amazing? Would it? I feel like it might attract a, a strange crowd. Well, yes, maybe. But it's not as bad as under 10 beauty pageants that happen in that one movie. Definitely. By which definitely I mean Little Miss true. Sunshine. Mm -hmm. um, but and anyway. in real life, I believe, as well. Well, yes. That is the more distressing In thing. America. <laughs> Possibly also the UK. But yeah, mm. the question is, what is the difference between 6 and 11? I don't know. What is the difference between 6 and 11? The kid apparently said 6 is curly. The answer <laughs> is 5, obviously. But um, <laughs> the point uh, is, of, is, is you're asking a question in a really annoying way. Yeah. But they've got to know that when we're talking about numbers, when we're talking about difference, what we mean is subtraction. And then they've got to do it. And ah. so his whole point was, we're not using very naturalistic language. So he said, if you ask, like, even a three to six-year-old, what is two dogs and one more? They'll tell you three dogs. Because they don't seem to, to want to add numbers together, but adding dogs together makes a bit more sense to them. What is two dogs and one more? A Korean meal for three. Was that racist? Yes. I'm not sure it is. Okay, I'm sorry well, about that. Well, I don't know. Well, well I would we'll go I, I to verge, Korea soon, so I'll, I'll find some, out for yes. you. You're supposed to know. You're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose you that's true. Do an implicit association test. Um, probably be very unwise. Well, I, I suppose it's stereotypical. I'm not sure it's racist. Um, okay, yes, I'll give you that. It's a national stereotype. It's a cultural stereotype. And we are... I mean, anyway, moving on. I'm surprised I didn't do any cultural stereotypes about Jersey. You know, well, it's, what is there to be? It's small. There are cows. Everyone knows everyone. They're all kind of incestuous. It's yeah, I any small community. You know, it's not like a Jersey. Oh, and they're all rich. That's the one Jersey specific thing. Yeah. No, I don't know. Interestingly, and I say interestingly, um, <laughs> when Hughes got kids to put on their own marks um, to write down numbers, when they were giving them kind of completely free choice, they would often use their own graphics. And he says. You know, teachers should capitalise on this. You should encourage children to use their own notation and slowly build towards actual notation, which could be insane, because how will you know if the question is right? 
like, also like, like yeah i i worry that if you have particularly kind of recalcitrant children then they're not going to want to change to the new system <laughs> <laughs> it's like i like using smiley faces stop making me you you know not use them um yeah so he did show this by using a street hustling gambling game essentially then he has four tins he gives the kids four tins he says look in one of them there's nothing in one of them there's one thing two things in the the third one and three things in the fourth one uh i want you to find me the one with two things in and they have to pick one and at first they only have to guess but once they've guessed once they can look inside see what it is and make any kind of symbol they want on the outside and this is even up to six to nine year olds very few of them used numbers wouldn't just really? put zero one two three on they would use mm. their own symbols um and in fact the sort of symbols they'd go for are pictographic so on the two one they draw two blocks if there was two blocks in there um mm. or they'd use iconic so they do like tallies but they wouldn't huh. use numbers because numbers are very conceptual and they can kind of change in meaning as well, apparently. This is the thing. You've got, you know, uh, times, dates, pages in books, TV channels, you know. Oh, I see, yeah. Not, I thought when you said changing in meaning, you were thinking more like the, the Piraha thing of like two meaning any number between one and four. No, um, no. But no, that's interesting. Different context. And also that two means something different in when the number appears in two and also in 20. Mm. Sort of. Yeah, You know, there's a certain amount of non-rational thing that has something a bit more unique for each number. So As opposed to, like, pictorial representation. Essentially. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And so, yeah, using money. You know, they're all slightly different as well, and they reckon that this is quite confusing. Um, I, I can sort of see that. I mean, I don't know. Uh, sort of intuitively, you, uh, I, I kind of wonder how relevant those subtle different meanings are to children in that context i don't know i mean maybe certainly by the sort of like what you're saying like six to nine year olds did you yeah. say yeah that i i suppose that that makes more sense but for the very like very young kids maybe i i, I wouldn't have imagined that they would have got as far as you know things like the the money and stuff like that yeah, but looking you know, stuff up in a book yeah, could be right yeah exactly being allowed to change Dates. the tv channel yeah yeah dates apart from their birthday um mm. yeah so um which as far as i can like i i spent many of my early years in constant waking up every morning in the constant hope that maybe today was my birthday really it took me a long time to work out any form of sort of prediction <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that's kind of cute it's kind of sad is what it How is old <laughs> <are> you when <laughs> that's uh 21 oh <laughs> Hey, we're going to be 23 soon. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Not exciting. It's a terrible... You know, it's a, it is a really age. bad age. Like It's just stopped being good. Because obviously, like, 18 through 21 are all exciting. And then 22, you're like, ah, it's only 22. It's basically the same as 21. But 23 is heading inexorably for 25. I'm not, I'm not worried about being 25. But maybe, you know, in the, about two weeks' time, and 24. Birthday, I'll be 23. <laughs> it would be like... Ah, yes. Mm. And anyone who's older than this listening is going to hate us. Yes, so, yeah. uh, hooray. People older than us, Jersey people and the Koreans are all <laughs> going to hate us this week. Yeah, let's go and exclude everyone. And anyone who <laughs> doesn't think maths is cool. Maths is <laughs> and cool possibly the Piraha for mispronouncing their words. And later in the show, the Welsh. Hooray. <laughs> so yeah, just a last thing on Hughes. Hughes noted that children love using their fingers to count. 
which is interesting that the Birahafa have such a confusing system. Mm. But yeah, even when objects aren't visible or tangible, children would tap things out or utilize their fingers in some other way. Basically, mm. that they um, use them as a memory aid. Mm. Um, and a lot of theories around number seem to be linked to memory. Some people yeah. even believe we have a separate part of the brain for working number memory, which I wrote down as lateral IPS. I'm not sure where that is. Or the angular gyrus. Interparietal sulcus. 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 Okay. I, think, I thought I it was parietal I and I thought it was sulcus, but I couldn't figure out what the I. And I thought there isn't an, is there an inferior parietal sulcus? And then I got confused oh, about monkey brains. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the point is separate from where our are. word memory is. And obviously that's a controversial theory, as you might be about to hear. Mm. Um, and of course, the weird thing about using fingers is that fingers are abstract in a way, because they are objects, you know, you have 10 fingers, but if you're counting out 10 things using 10 fingers, then you've got to abstract from the fact that the fingers are then becoming symbolic for objects. Yeah. So kids don't like using numbers necessarily, uh, you know, until they've learned. Um, but fingers, they're just like, oh yeah, that's the fifth finger. Um, and yes, the last thing, last, 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 last thing on here is, uh, that just was randomly written in my notes for this you know, from back when I was actually studying this, was the phrase decomposition of the subtrahend. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> That's the trouble with maths. It's using a language that I don't speak. And, you know, each one of us gets to a certain limitation and then we stop understanding it. Similarly, your notes, the problem with them is that they <laughs> appear to be using a language you don't understand. <laughs> yes that's right i've put it all in code in case someone wants to know what i really think about maths uh, but i do think our band name should be decomposition of the subtrahend <laughs> you, you keep saying it like that is is are you saying subtrend or subtrahend subtrahend wow i know have you tried googling it i i haven't i it's something to do with the way you can do subtraction but that's all i know and i don't especially want to subject our listeners to it <laughs> Decomposition of the subtrahend to solve the problem 75. That's not a problem. Hang on, let me find it. I think we're, I think we're getting somewhere. We're definitely getting somewhere. <laughs> subtrahend. It's a word. It is definitely a word. What is yeah. a subtrahend? Oh, is it like minuend minus subtrahend equals difference? You see? Or something. It's, it's confusing. Like, yeah. Since subtraction... Okay, so subtrahend is the number that you are subtracting. Yeah, so, and the minuend is the thing you're subtracting it from. Okay, then how do you decompose the subtrahend? Oh, maybe it's... Uh, so, like, if you were doing, like, 75 minus 25 you would decompose the subtrahend into 20 and 5. So you're like, 75 minus 5 is 70, 70 minus 20 is 50. Okay, there we go. That's not wow. as scary as I thought, but the phrase itself, if you just said to someone, right, we're going to be doing this sum using the decomposition of the subtrahend, they'd be like, ah! <laughs> I know I am. Thinking of vowels. And things that make you go, ah! <laughs> Come let's on, let's Welsh, Welsh this joint. <laughs> um, surely more, <laughs> but anyway. Um, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> You're doing the offending this week, Ben. That's your job. What, how is that offensive? There are a lot of sheep in Wales. There's nothing insulting about that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. And we're back. Study by Ellison Henley. 
uh, called A Bilingual word, Eff- word Length Effect Implications for Intelligence Testing and the Relative Ease of Mental Calculation in Welsh and English. Zing! Uh, so basically, this is based on the idea that um, how uh, the words you use uh, to in- indicate your the numbers that you count with uh, influence how easy it is for you to do calculation with them. Simply put, if you if the words for your numbers one to nine are longer, then it will take you longer to count and thus to do arithmetic and everything, and it has all these knock-on effects. Um, what Ellis and Henley did was they got 12 bilingual subjects and they tested them on a variety of me- measures, uh, including the time it takes to read single, uh, a series of single digits and their digit span and all this kind of thing uh, in English and Welsh. And the finding is that, uh, for example, it takes on average 12.9 seconds longer to read 200 single digits in Welsh than it does to read those same digits in English. Um, It's also found that uh, these bilinguals have a longer digit span in English than they do in Welsh and that it's faster to translate Welsh English Welsh digits into English than it is to translate English digits into Welsh. Um, incidentally, I, uh, I was looking up the, the, the Welsh one to nine on the internet and, uh, the way it's it, obviously because it's a different language, the way it's written doesn't in any way relate to the way it sounds, um, in a lot of cases. So the way you count to one to nine in Welsh is as follows, a bit of Welsh education for you. In, die, three, pedwa, pimp, chwerch, sich. Oith now. Was one of those pimp? Yes, it was. Five is pimp, but it's written pump. <laughs> okay. So you never can confuse your pimps and your pumps. Uh, anyway, yes. So, so that was. I thought that was interesting. There, there were the the pimp the pimp pump one was the most obvious, but the one that was chwerch was uh, is written c h w e c h, um, which just seems unhelpful really um well, anyway this is a super place. but the thing so the thing that struck me about that in die three pedwa pimp now doesn't seem to take that much longer to doesn't really seem to take that much no, longer to say than one two three four five six seven eight nine ten admittedly that didn't take me as long to say and maybe it does i don't know maybe that's familiarity effect well yeah exactly and so i mean the fact that there were only 12 subjects and that Okay, so they were bilingual, but were they primarily English? I don't know. It, 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 You'd imagine on a day-to-day basis, just you have more cause to speak English than Welsh. Exactly. And um, I mean, possibly what? not if you were like in quite an isolated part of Wales. Mm, but I don't know. I don't know. And also, I mean, when I when I first sort of read about this study, my my kind of expectation was that the 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 difference would be you know the word for four would be like eight syllables long or something um yeah you're expecting something like l'enfer yeah or i mean which i don't actually know enough to recite but you know but like so out of that those one to nine the only ones that i find particularly slower to say i think are chwerch and sich because they have the uh unusual syllable in them that aren't common yeah. in English. Yeah, basically we're just running out of breath from those 
kind of vowel Whatever. shapes. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, in die three is not hard to say. It's only because I'm rolling the R because I'm trying to do a Welsh accent, um, which is presumably not difficult. Not, not something you have to try if you're Welsh, really, is it? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And uh, the differences didn't seem to be extreme, um, but they were significant even in this pathetically small sample size. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, they seem like they found, found like a, a fairly significant, if, if minor, effect. And therefore, you know, the study is called Implications for Intelligence Testing. So what it sounds like they're going for is you should change the, like, the Welsh, Welsh versions of IQ tests because it's just taking them longer. Unfortunately, it's nowhere near as exciting as that. It turns out that someone's already done that. So the WCIS is the Welsh Children's Intelligence Scale. Um, uh, which was adapted from the Wexler Intelligence Scale for Children, which is the standard kind of children IQ test. And that includes, um, you know, Welsh idiom and and it's been norms tested extensively in Welsh school kids. Um, the thing about this study was the only bit that wasn't kind of idiomatically matched norms tested was the digit span section. So Ellison Henley's conclusion is that based on their evidence from 20 Welsh kids or so, which was the total, they should make the digit span section very slightly easier. Right. So my world breaking world. What's the, yeah, like groundbreaking, groundbreaking world changing, world breaking world changing and groundbreaking news there. Um, which is, yeah, it's fine. It's, there's nothing wrong with like minor tweaking of, uh, of intelligence scales. And it's good that they've done the research. It's just not anywhere near as exciting as I thought it was going to be. It's always a shame when that happens in research. It is rather. Um, but yeah. Anyway. Like it. Shall I get uh, overexcited about something that doesn't really matter? I think oh, I on, shall. Then. That's <laughs> right. It's the mum number four. This week's episode brought to you by the number four, the greatest number in the world. Yeah. So these guys called Gunderson and Levine, and I say guys, they're women. Um, <laughs> based on this idea that there's this innate counting uh, that Tim, even guys is a is a pro- prototypical indicator if someone says i'm bringing the guys over you expect men but you're you're not surprised if they bring women that's a good point although i think if it was exclusively women that would be too far from the prototype that's like when you get four things when you've been told you're getting a couple yeah you do just feel... a bit too far over the borderline someone should research this stuff man yeah well I'm sure I could make it my life's work. <laughs> I'm rolling my eyes. Audio medium, super. You're rolling your eyes. Oh, your eye! I thought you were talk- still talking about like pronunciation of Welsh. <laughs> like Gunderson and Levy. Anyway. Yeah, and there's obviously we've talked about the kind of the, that innate counting. The one to three thing is something that's kind of there in pre-linguistic children it's in there in pre-linguistic cultures it's yes. even there in animals um i heard one suggested that uh, you know obsessive compulsive counting was to do that animals can count their size of their litter and if it doesn't add up they get really anxious because it means that one of their litter is missing huh that's a really interesting idea i have no idea if there's any evidence for it but it sounds nice you i mean it seems fairly easy to test yeah you you, you assess you know concrete counting in animals with different litter sizes yep you get on with the talking. I'll Google it. Okay. Anyway, what they were interested in was the cardinal principle, which is not the Pope's right-hand man, but that if you're counting up using words, then the last word you get to is the number you have. So children often learn to count by rote. They've got this sequence in their head, and that's why the cardinal principle 
works. You're not so much working out that you have four dots, four docks. Yeah, your kids have got these toy docks, which they put their votes in. They go along and they count one, two, three, four. Okay, I haven't got any more. I'll stop there. What number did I say? Four. That's how many I have. And this particular paper by Gunderson and Levine has found that the key point in learning this process is the number four. Obviously, being born on the fourth of the fourth, please don't steal my identity. <laughs> I love anything that promotes the number four. Um, <laughs> research makes me very happy. So what did they do to find this out? Well, what they did was they videotaped, and I was surprised by this because it's 2012. No hard disk recording, no instant YouTube upload from the iPad. They videotaped <laughs> interactions between a set of children and parents between the ages of 14 and 30 months at four-month intervals. And they then looked at the moments that the parents talked about numbers with their children. And at the very end, did a test of counting on the children that tested how well they could use this cardinal principle mm. and found that the key factor that improved the children's performance was talking about sets of four to ten visible objects. Talking about the numbers one to three or talking about things that could not be seen, like time, because we don't live on Gallifrey and have a time vortex to stare into and go mad, didn't help the children. Only 4 I don't to think 10 it would help the children if they did. Yeah, you don't want to turn into the master. Uh, that isn't going to help your cardinal principle. I'm, I know some possibly. people who want to turn into the master. He will knock four times. So actually, maybe it would help their counting. <laughs> Is it four times? I can't remember. Got Mitten. Stephen Moffat now. Too many other things to keep in your head whilst you're watching that show. <laughs> Um, and then they, so having kind of concluded this, they cite research that basically says parents don't realise how much of an impact they have on their children's mathematical education, hmm. um, and that preschool understanding of maths is basically predictive of later success. And that's oh. one thing that always gets to me in developmental research, and that's how the predictivity of early things is always really huge. It I don't makes the idea of being a parent utterly terrifying. Yeah, there's lots of things that make it scary to be a parent. The idea that early ages stuff has such a big impact throughout the rest of your life mm. is one of them. Um, yes. Like that Haribo advert that's on at the moment. I don't know if, if you've seen it because you probably haven't watched any broadcast television. But I saw. I, I may have seen it while I was in Jersey where we had broadcast television. Oh, wow. What a novelty. Um, it's a Haribo <laughs> advert where they repeat this famous experiment of if you don't eat this chocolate, you'll get a lot more. Except the twist is that they can't resist it because it's not just chocolate, it's Haribo, mm. and Haribo is irresistible. Oh, yes. Uh, the one with the children, like, standing next to it wearing Basically, the coats. conclusion of that is, like, all of these children who ate the Haribo, um, although some of them do use the techniques like licking it or getting really close to it and that to try and resist it, um, <laughs> you'll, uh, if you, uh... I find that the best way of it, resisting... terrible life outcomes. <laughs> All these children ended up dead in ditches. Anyway, I, f I do find the best way of resisting things that I'm tempted by is to lick them. Yeah, it doesn't always work for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. Well, often, Tim, I am very tempted by you, but it's quite difficult for me to lick you. I use my tongue as a weapon to keep <laughs> from touching you. I do too. Have I explained that in the past? If not, then that was really weird. Um, I don't if, think yes, you have. Yes, then it's still pretty weird. That. If someone wants to touch you and you don't want them to touch you, which happens to me more than many people, stick your tongue out and it creates a certain level of like disgust. They don't want to touch the tongue uh, that will stop them touching you, even if they're not anywhere near the tongue. I, I would tell similar stories, but I would get in trouble. So, <laughs> um. Right. OK, then. But the point is, um, the end of this uh, study, they say, 
The future research could look into how to, we could practically apply this, training parents and nursery to talk more about the range of numbers from four to ten. And I like how kind of you know lackadaisical that idea is. It's just a little silly. You know, you see your kid playing with three blocks, and you quickly rush to give them one more. So <laughs> count them up; it'll be four. Or you know, you cut all their food into four to ten pieces and get them to count it. Wait, maybe it isn't silly. Maybe. It's the way to make your child a maths genius. You know, all the pushy parents who are listening with the children in the 14 to 30 month region, of which I'm pretty sure we have at least one, not necessarily pushy parent, but parent with the child in the 13, the 14 to 30 month region. That's what you've got to do. So from now on, Psychomedia top tip, stop <laughs> watching CBeebies shows with less than four characters. <laughs> that's, well, all, that's all I have to say, except that four is So you get, get them watching Game of Thrones. That has loads of characters <laughs> in it. <laughs> That's not going to affect them negatively in other ways at all. <laughs> One beheading, two beheading, three beheadings, four beheadings. Yeah. It sounds like the worst Dr. Seuss book, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's One like the cat in the hat. Red but... death, blue death. <laughs> uh, what was it? One fish, two fish, red fish, like red fish, nuke fish, I think, was one from StarCraft. Anyway, um... Anyway, yes. So the moral of the story is maths was really interesting and this episode was great. <laughs> so so in total, um, be grateful that you have a sensible uh, language that makes you good at counting uh, and that you're not Welsh uh, because that makes you're I good think at that's counting. Totally the first point. <laughs> They're kind of more related than I realized those two. But anyway. Yes. And yes, that the number four is very important. And that uh, children find maths difficult unless it's presented in the, to them in ways that actually make sense before you just jump straight into the abstract stuff. There we go. Great. Next hey, week, we we'll be back with more sex violence and despicableness, I'm sure. I imagine we will be. What was your idea for next week's show? I was thinking of kind of crime, law and order. Oh, brilliant. So, yes, we genuinely we will be back with more sex, drugs and violence. Hurrah! hooray that's our catchphrase for the show it apparently. is rather well uh, anyway uh, if that is everything then uh yeah goodbye everyone bye bye decompose your subtrahends <laughs> now you may now decompose your subtrahends you have been listening to psychomedia a welcome to the madness production for the internet the voting is now open for the 2012 Psychomedia Awards for Psychological Science, or PAPS. Current categories include the Bob Science Award for Adherence to Nominative Determinism, the Landis Award for Most Animals Sacrificed for Science, the Ramachandran Award for Excellence in Solving Other People's Problems by Accident, and finally, the Sigmund Freud Award for Gross Misrepresentation of Psychology. To nominate your favourite psychologists or to suggest further categories, head to psychomedia.wordpress.com. Email us at psychomediapodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at Team Psychomedia. That's at Team Psychomedia, not at at Team Psychomedia, which is the name of our spin-off show dealing with the psychology in the Star Wars Extended Universe. To be fair, I'm pretty sure our show deals with the psychology of the Star Wars Extended Universe. <laughs>